we're back to the message from the prophet Malachi this morning. So if you would, uh, open your Bibles, turn with me, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 17. We've also got the text up there this morning on the uh, PowerPoint. We're going to continue making our way through this Old Testament text. And just a, just a slight disclaimer this morning, too, before we proceed. Uh, we, we will be touching on some adult themes this morning. And kind of like to mention this up front, as I've said in the past, uh, in the case of little ears being present, uh, I'll do my best to handle the subject matter uh, tastefully, but please take this into uh, consideration uh, with any little ones out of Children's Church. You may want to send them today. Without further ado, let's, let's jump right into the text. <clears throat> the prophet, uh, the, <clears throat> try that again. The prophet Malachi says this, chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Verse 11. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? godly offspring so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth verse 16 continues for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says the lord the god of israel covers his garment with violence says the lord of hosts so guard yourselves in the spirit and do not be faithless Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Okay, uh, that's the end of our text. It's a little bit more this morning at a time uh, to maybe get down. Don't worry, uh, we'll, we'll chew on it a plenty. But what's happening here? Well, we mentioned, if you remember, it's been, a, been several weeks since we began uh, this series, but, but we talked about this book of Malachi largely taking aim at the spiritual indifference of God's people. Again, we're on the timeline about 440 to 400 years before Christ. And we noted already that the people of Israel, God's people at this time, had become lax on their commitment to God. As one commentator notes, where people had earlier heard the word of the Lord, they trembled and listened. 
But in Malachi's day, when they heard the word, they challenged it. Bit of a difference in the mindset. And guess what? Their relationships under their creator were suffering because of it. And that's, that's what we want to talk about this morning. You see, instead of being one people under one God who honored him faithfully in their marriage covenants, verse 10, who honored God in returning to him faithful offspring, verse 15. What was happening? The Jews were divorcing their spouses, marrying women who worshiped false gods. It was but a sign of their unfaithfulness to Jehovah God that his people were breaking his covenant promises with with one another, verse 14. And it's interesting. Look back with me here in the text at, at verse 13. Astonished they were. They were wondering why their lives were full of such upheaval. Why this self-righteousness they had. It, not, not, not a godly righteousness, but, but a self-righteousness. Why it wasn't working out for them so well. So Malachi, Malachi is bringing a reminder to God's people that they're made, they're made by one God, intended for one lifelong relationship called marriage to one spouse, verse 10, for the purpose of bringing forth offspring to serve the Lord over the generations, one nation, one spouse, one God. And this was God's plan from the get-go. Genesis 2.24, this was the design, this was always the plan, no matter what a Solomon and some others did with it. The marriage plan was always, this is politically incorrect, I realize this. We don't like to hear this today. Might upset some people, but this is God's word. The marriage plan was always for one man and one woman. One group of offspring together as one, giving glory to one. But when marriage then and now is accepted under terms of of convenience, thought of as a temporary situation until something better comes along, God's people are going to fall outside of God's plan. It's going to happen. Genesis 2.24, that's the plan for marriage. I don't care what we do from there. When our marriages are expendable or disposable, when we grow weary, when when we just get tired of putting up with one another, like we do politicians or bandwagons or TV shows or sports teams or entertainers. Uh, Willie Nelson sings a song called Delete and Fast Forward, when we think we can just delete and fast forward. When we respond in this way, exit stage left, We're not just sinning against one another in the end. We're sinning against God. You see, we're breaking a covenant promise. A covenant promise to our Creator. Verse 14, covenant. And let's talk a little bit more about what a covenant promise means before God. I realize that our our cultures, our, our court systems... These tend to uh, bow to the glands, the almighty dollar. Although we've redefined marriage to stand for any number of things, and it seems we are in the process of doing so, right? Marriage at this time on the timeline can legally consist of anybody to anybody, it seems. And the time is coming, I fear, when legally they could even encompass any number of people. Already for any amount of time, right? 
Think about it. The very fact that prenuptial agreements exist today in the case of divorce should be proof that our society at large considers marriage like any other legal contract. What's the difference with marriage, biblically speaking? As one author writes, a God-pleasing marriage is not based off contract. It's based off covenant. It's based off covenant. A contract is an agreement between parties, often one that is written and enforceable by law based on protection and mistrust. I already don't trust you. But a true marriage covenant as defined by God in Genesis and explained here in Malachi, which Jesus also refers to later in Matthew 19.4, it's a bond between two parties holding the concept of cleaving or sticking together no matter what as if they are being held by super glue. Can't pull them apart. Couples knowingly living under the marriage covenant know the biblical reality of becoming one in flesh and in spirit, promised to God, promised by God to his people as they live in obedience and submission to the Lord Jesus. That's covenant. You see the difference in biblical terms. I don't care how any court redefines marriage in terms of contract. Marriage is a biblical term with biblical meaning. It involves the long haul and commitment, ultimately commitment to God. Covenant. We start there. But when God's people as they were at this time, when God's people fail to be committed to God, God's people will also fail to be committed to their spouse. God's people in failing to be obedient and submissive to God will fail to love and respect and submit to their husband or wife as well. You see the way it's supposed to work with covenant. Sometimes we're shocked or disappointed or disgusted when we hear of, of someone with worldly, secular influence caught up in adultery. Uh, perhaps a political scandal or a messy separation involving some uh, popular entertainer. And yet, why should we be so surprised? Why should we be so surprised when such behavior and faith, faithlessness comes from non-believers? Because marriage itself comes from God. And when we dismiss our marriages, we dismiss God, says the prophet. That's where we start. And this wasn't just the case, obviously, 400 years before Jesus. You know, it seems like we, we struggle today with our marriage covenants. Uh, we, we often hear the statistic that the divorce rate is 50% among non-believers, among Christians, believe it or not, statistically, we sit at a highly unsettling 51. And so God's people, God's people are unfaithful, uh, not just to each other, but God's people are, are unfaithful to God, whom we ultimately belong. Verse 14, under covenant, two remain one, under one God. And so I think the message for God's people this morning is obvious. There's a solution that we have, a solution that we have to the problems we see around us of, of broken homes and dysfunctional relationships and, and children who get lost in the shuffle. If we could just return to this blueprint of love given by the God of love, as the prophet says, don't we ask? Don't we, don't we wonder? We will look around and we say, where's the God of justice? Verse 17, where is he? And yet, our source of power is right here. 
because I choose or I don't choose to be a just person to the people in my family. I choose or I don't choose to treat my spouse and my kids as though I have a covenant promise made to them from the Lord. Do we truly seek one will, God's will for our lives? I know it that it's easy to just think of me in my relationships, to just put myself first, my likes and my needs. And I know we also like to say, and we even hear it from some various pulpits, that this Old Testament stuff, it doesn't mean much for people of God today. But you know what? I think we can get somewhat of an idea, somewhat of an inkling of how our God feels about a divorce and a careless remarriage by reading Malachi verses, chapter 2, verses 10 to 17. It doesn't matter how I feel about my relationships. This is what the Bible says. Whether these words are easy to hear or not, the Bible says we're a people meant for one God and one spouse, and the spouse should be a Christian. That's God's word. That's what it says. Back at the time of Moses, we were warned about this already. Back at the time of Moses, Israel was warned at Exodus 34, 11 and Deuteronomy 7 and in other places to take care of who they married, to watch out for non-believers, that such marriages would undermine their faith and ultimately dishonor their covenant promises with God. But have we learned? Thousands of years later, have we learned? Do we see Christians marrying non-Christians today or Christians uh, divorcing and remarrying? We, we see it too often. So the Bible's already warned us about the former option, and it warns us about the latter choice right here in our text. Look again with me, verse 16. Verse 16, Malachi says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. It's interesting. The original Hebrew text, which we've translated violence, it's actually the word uh, bagad. It means to act violently in rebellion. That's, that's the sense we get here. It's harsh language from the Lord. It's intended to be understanding one God and one spouse means that if you leave your spouse, you're violently rebelling against your spouse and against God. And what's more, remarrying someone outside of the faith is basically the same as bowing to their foreign gods, whatever or whomever they are. Maybe we need to uh, rethink divorce in the church. Maybe we need to start considering it not, not an affront just to us, a problem for our families, but an affront to God, splitting apart what he God has joined together, verse 15, for his glory, covenant, covenant. There's a secret here. Not saying it, it's going to uh, be an easy fix for every single problem and situation. But I think it, it makes a lot of sense, should be reasonable to us, that if we put God first in our life, we'll put our spouse next. It's just going to happen. One God, then one spouse. Ms. Shanti Feldon, a, a Harvard social researcher and author in the book Highly Happy Marriages, writes the following. Highly happy couples tend to put God at the center of their marriage and focus on him rather than even the marriage or their spouse for fulfillment and happiness. When your aim is to please God, your attitude about your spouse will be affected 
Another statistic from, from one researcher finds that despite the high divorce statistic in the church, those who attend church regularly are still 35% less likely to divorce than those who have no religious preferences. Why? Because God is at the center of their lives. He goes on, quote, quote nominal Christians, however, or, or those, quote, who simply call themselves Christians but are not actively engaged with their faith, they are actually 20% more likely than the general population to get divorced. So proof's in the pudding. The more we embrace one God, the more he will help us cling to one spouse. Because covenant marriage agreements based on him will be based on self-sacrifice. Will this be easy? I've been married for, uh, um, she made me count the numbers this week. She just wanted to see if I could count that high, I think. I've been married for 17 years, but, but I, can, I can already tell you from experience the temptation is always present, right, in my marriage. Uh, maybe some of you could uh, relate, can agree with me to consider. What I don't have going on for me at this particular moment that might make me more comfortable or might feel good or might flatter my ego. It's just how I am. I'm selfish. I have a wife who manages a house and teaches at a homeschool cooperative, raises three children, takes care of and assists a ministry husband who's had some kind of a physical impairment since January. You've heard of Chief of Sinners. I uh, proudly bear the title Chief of Whiners. There's no question that my wife clings to her spouse. She's faithful. She's a faithful woman. I love her so much. She puts God first in her life. And that makes all the difference. And yet, you know, immaturity, selfishness, the flesh can wear at this guy from time to time. I'm not perfect. I'm guilty of only thinking about myself, what I don't have, what, what I'm not getting out of the marriage at the moment because I'm a sinner. The devil wants me to think not in terms of a couple as God has made my wife and, and me one to do his will, but to, quote, do what I will as the old pagan slogan goes. Meanwhile, the Lord has called his married couples instead of being individuals with these high expectations for the other, instead of being whiners or manipulators or users for things out of the relationship whether we talk material or emotional or sexual instead of being takers God wills instead that I turn to my wife the other person in the marriage covenant and say to her what may I do for you what can I give to you what do you need it's part of that covenant I'm called to be a person who Malachi 2.16 is guarded in my spirit by faithfulness faithfulness Guys, are we, are we guarded in our spirits to be faithful to our wives? Are we? And vice versa. I love my wife with all my heart, but I also know what temptation feels like. I've experienced that before. I think we all have. You know, you don't have to be actively seeking or desiring or wanting or chasing an affair with someone in the flesh to be unfaithful to your spouse. Did you realize that? It's, it's possible there are other ways. Based on a survey of a 1,000 adults nationwide, this is the Christian Barna Group, has determined that two-thirds, 67% of all men between the ages of 31 and 49 uh, view pornography regularly. One-half, or 49%, of men between the ages of 50 and 68 view pornography regularly as well. If this sounds shocking, it shouldn't to some 
And I know we don't like to talk about this. It's kind of an elephant in the room, right? But guarding ourselves, as Malachi puts it, demands that we do. Because if you're a Christian friend, there's no place for pornography in your life whatsoever, in any way, shape, or form, no matter what. The way I read Genesis 2.24, the way Jesus and Paul talk about sex in the eyes of the Lord when you have sex with someone, you not just physically but spiritually are joined with them. How many men, verse 11, profane the sanctuary of the Lord by lusting over or uniting themselves outside of the marriage bed? I'd like for you to make a note of 1 Corinthians 6.15 here as well. This is serious business. I don't think we take it seriously enough in the church. Ultimately, you belong to your spouse only. That's God's word. The body you've been given ultimately belongs to God. What are you doing with it? And verse 12 of our text gives us a definite warning about any kind of adultery. Verse 12, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. You see, being one people under one God means that we can't just do what we want with who we are, with our physical self from Monday through Saturday, and then try to fool our maker as being all his on Sunday. If we desire to be God's people, a united people, a Christian people, a holy people, we must be faithful to one God and one spouse. Amen? We must be faithful. Now, maybe you're thinking, seriously, preacher? And uh, I'm stuck with that person? And this is kind of comical. You, you can laugh at that a little bit. I mean, I'm stuck with that person? I'm stuck with that one guy alone till death do his part? Maybe that's a revelation for some of us. It's quite, possi po quite possible that there's a, a guy here or two that's thinking, listen, listen, Josh. I mean, I try to greet my wife after I get home from work. And she's got some sweatpants on. And... Her hair's up in, in a bun, and her facial expression is saying the kids have taken 15 years off her life. Today. You know what a buzzkill that is? I imagine there's probably a lady or two here that's, that's thinking, well, you know, my husband, he's cold, he's distant, he's stuck in his own little smug world when he gets home, and in fact, he won't even listen to a word I say about my day half the time. You know how that affects any kind of romance? And all we can say about these kinds of gripes is, biblically speaking, if you signed up with that guy or that gal to be partners during the honeymoon and when the fireworks are going off, you also signed up to be partners in the smugness and the sweatpants. Amen? <laughs> We're going to have a marriage seminar one of these days called Smugness and Sweatpants. I think if you were to ask my wife uh, for advice, uh, some of the uh, younger couples, if you were to ask my wife for advice on dealing with a husband who doesn't listen, I think she would tell you, just hang on for a little while, sweetie, I promise. It's only going to get worse. <laughs> but too often, we, we have expectations, don't we? We do. Sometimes our expectations get us in trouble. Francis Schaeffer once said, sometimes the greatest deterrent to a very good marriage is believing that you ought to have a perfect one. Chip Ingram writes, you're never going to be fully satisfied. The idea that there's this perfect person and perfect marriage and that you're totally fulfilled and never have a problem is a lie from the pit of hell. So start looking at what you do have with the other person instead of complaining in your heart about what you don't have. Unquote. The grass will always be greener in someone else's backyard till we get there, my friends. 
And foreign gods and worldly whims will always call out to us while God is asking us to witness to others through our married lives. So may we not profane, verse 10, that word profane in the text means make secular, profane. We don't profane the things of God. Marriage is a holy covenant by God. Don't profane it. Don't profane our relationships under God. But you know, this, this message today isn't, isn't just for younger couples or, or baby Christians. Some of us have been Christians or, or maybe even church leaders for years, and, and we've missed the point here of one God and, and one spouse. Recently, there was a, a lead pastor of a large church uh, down south. Pastor admitted earlier uh, this year to his church that his, his, his marriage was over, but that his, his wife had, had left him and, and not the other way around. This is a true story. He pleaded with his church. I'm not in some romantic, adulterous relationship. He said from the pulpit, I, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not having an affair. The only trouble was his love interest to join the congregation was passing around intimate photos and text messages from him. So if commitment to the Lord implies commitment to one's family, this, this is a cautionary tale for sure. But we have other stories, stories of, of God's people who get it right. People such as Herbert and Zalmira Fisher. This is a neat story. One Christian publication tells a much uh, happier tale of, of this couple who were married on May 13, 1924. In 2008, 84 years later, the Fishers broke a Guinness World Record for being the longest married couple still living worldwide. After 87 years of marriage, Herbert Fisher passed away in 2011. He was 105 years old. His wife, Zelmira, was the exact same age when she passed away just two years later in 2013. After breaking the world record, the Fishers were asked what made them realize they could spend the rest of their lives together. And the Fishers answered, divorce was never an option or even a thought. We were best friends before we were married. A friend is for life. Our marriage has therefore lasted a lifetime. And they continued, there's no secret to our marriage. We just did what was needed for each other and our family. And when asked what the one thing was that the two had in common above everything else, the Fishers replied, we are both Christians. We believe in God. God has put the two of us together on the same team to win. Marriage is a commitment to the Lord, so we pray with and we pray for each other every day. But perhaps my favorite part of this uh, interview world record time was the Fisher's answer to what their fondest memory was of the, their 85-year-old marriage. Smugness and sweatpants. No, I'm joking. The Fishers responded to the question of their fondest marriage memory by saying, our legacy, five children, ten grandchildren, nine great-grandchildren, and one great-great-grandchild. Malachi writes, what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. I don't know this for certain, but it's, it's likely that putting God first has given the fishers their legacy to return to him. What a group of believers. You see, to have one God and one spouse, that's the message from Malachi to God's people before Christ and today. 
Now, that's not to say, my friends, that, that, that for many of us, life is always going to run that way, amen? And you know, God hasn't willed everyone to be married. Someone has uh, rightfully pointed out to me not too long ago, uh, you know who wasn't married? Jesus. Kind of an important name here this morning. Marriage in and of itself doesn't make someone holy. The Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 7, 7, I wish that all men were even as I myself. So neither singleness nor marriage is the, quote, biblical standard. And there are some other questions we could ask this morning. What do we do with this text from Malachi? If there was divorce and remarriage already in our family, uh, have we committed adultery by marrying? Should we divorce so we can undo the adultery? The answer, the answer to that is no. God has forgiven the sins of the past. We can, we can move forward in him if we're in him. Overall, we might ask, is this text from Malachi easy on us, easy on the ears? No, not at all. Flies in the face of everything we hear culturally today. Not difficult words to preach either. But I stand with you this morning, my friends, an admitted whiner as well as an admitted sinner in saying, I know we don't always use our freedom to make godly choices. 1 Peter 2.16 you know, in fact, as a culture, as a nation, as Americans, I think we sometimes love our, our individual freedoms so much we, we can forget where they come from, right? I mean, we love the idea of freedom and having a sense of liberty so much that we've, we've pledged allegiance to the, the flag of the, of the uh, United States since the late 1800s. Look this up, I thought this was kind of neat. Formally since 1942, when the pledge was officially adopted by Congress. Remember how that pledge goes? Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. But notice I left out two words, which were la later added on Flag Day in 1954. Two words which actually brought all the meaning to the Pledge of Allegiance. One nation under God. One nation under God. I think as Americans, as long as we desire the one true God over us at home and throughout our nation, we'll be free in him, amen? In God's kingdom, Christians are definitely made one people under God. But will we continue to pledge our allegiance to him over all of our relationships as well? As Christians, we're one people made up of individuals meant for one spouse, put together as one to serve one God. I don't know about you, but that's what freedom, biblical freedom, means to me. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I thank you for your word. Lord, I, I thank you for your, your love and your grace and your mercy. It covers our sins. Where we've fallen short, you've made up the difference. By the blood of Jesus, there's nothing we can do that can change the way you feel about us. You love us. We can see that love in our lives. We we can notice it in our relationships. Through your spirit, you guide us. Your desire is to bring us home, to be with you. I thank you.
Thank you, Lord, for your awesome plan of salvation. Lord, we're sinners. We sin. We don't deserve you. We don't deserve your love. Lord, help us to remember that the past is gone. No matter where we've been in our relationships, no matter the lives we've led, no matter the trouble we've had, no matter the hardships we've suffered, your love remains. And you love us so much. Help us to be a witness to you before the world. Whether we're married, whether we're not married, whether we've been down some difficult paths in our relationships, we know in the end that you'll fix everything. You'll dry our tears. The day is coming, Lord, when the pains of this life will be gone and over. Help us to hang on to that. Help us to hang on to you, to put you first, to put you at the center of all of our lives so that others will see that. Lord, I thank you for the, the godly couples, the, the godly marriages and relationships that, that we can see within our congregations where that selfless love for one another is seen. It, it's displayed. Sometimes, God, we get it right, and I thank you for that. Help us, Lord, to, to, to witness, to be an example to the younger couples, and, and, and Lord, uh, to, if we're, if, we're, if we're younger, we're in a relationship, Lord, help us to, uh, to have the courage to, to be real men and women in you. Lord, if we're going through, through a difficult time in our relationship, Lord, give us the courage to seek you for wisdom and to hang on to your words and your spirit. Lord, we know that we don't always have the answers, but you do, and you are the answer. Help us to love you more each day because you love us so much. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Calvary. It is in the name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen. And this morning, if you haven't embraced the Lord the way he awaits for you, if you haven't gone down into those waters of baptism and come up a new creature, right where it all begins, where the relationship really starts, where we're at the beginning of things for a whole eternity is changed, we invite you to come forward and to be made new in him. Or if there's another decision you'd like to make, rededicate yourself to the one true love, your first love, the one who gave you life, who knew you, knew you in the womb. How awesome is that? The Bible says that he knew us, knew us in the womb, and he loved us then. If you have a decision that you'd like to make this morning, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing all about that love he has for us, how he loves.